I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up into the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse number 1. The excitement and the joy that fills each of our hearts today with the blessing God has given us to assemble and to gather is truly a great thing. And we trust and hope that the service will not only edify each of us, but most significantly to glorify and exalt the name of our God in heaven. As you noticed in the announcements, several continue to be on our sick list, and for them we continue to be very mindful and prayerful and certainly hopeful that things for them will be much, much better in, very, in the very, very future in terms of their health. And for those that are not able to be with us, that they might in fact enjoy that opportunity to come back and do what they no doubt would much, very much like to do at any rate. The lesson this morning, as you may have noted as it was announced in the bulletin, has as its title, Watch the Peas of Sin. And it's a bit interesting that as you look at some of these introductory comments and remarks, several things it seems to be might well be of note. First of all, it's remarkable that you and I probably have heard it said, watch your P's and Q's. Maybe our parents told us that, maybe a friend told us that. When we were about to tread on a great decision or we were about to act in a way that might not be wise, we were admonished to be careful and to watch the things we were doing and the way we were doing them. That has lent its idea as the title of this lesson today, Watch the Peas of Sin. Every single element that we consider as you and I discuss sin for the next few moments will be prompted by a letter that begins with the word P. And I think we'll be reminded that many of these ideas, many of these strong features are in fact so thoroughly presented to us in the Word of God and in fact sin by its nature is a strong thing. One more thing on that slide has to do with the fact that many of the basic features of this lesson were delivered by Johnny Ramsey in a sermon many, many years ago. I have modified it some, added a few things to it, but at least the thought and the concept came to me as a result of that sermon he delivered. Uh, Brother Ramsey passed away in, I guess it's been now, about seven years ago, so I don't really know what year he first delivered this lesson. The P's of sin. As you can see, sin is a subject that so frequently occurs in the Bible. And isn't it interesting that so often today, sin is not really that strong a part of the human language. We choose other words to represent that which is ugly and bad, but we often don't call it sin. You and I, as those that are faithful members of the body of Christ, likely use that word far more often than most other typical people in society because we believe what God's Word says about sin. And we have the fullest assurance that what God says is true and right. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16. It is for that reason that we note this word sin occurs well over a thousand times in the Bible in one form or another. That means it's virtually on every page and many times it's several times on each page. But the reminder of sin is so very acute and it's so very to the point. Today, why don't we also give our attention to sin using these words that begin with the letter P to help us remember this nature of sin and to, in fact, appreciate what the Bible has to say about it. First of all, sin is presented. We highlighted at least some introductory comments toward that a moment ago. 
But isn't it true that there are many, many individuals who would say there really is no such thing as sin? They may say that there can be a bothered conscience, and they may say that there can be matters that are not good for the human society. But those who do not believe in God, such as atheists and others who doubt His existence, perhaps many agnostics, they likely would at the least question, if not openly assert, that there really is no such thing as what a Bible believer would call a sin. But however, the Word of God so strongly states the opposite viewpoint, that it does exist and that it is detailed in marvelous order in the pages of the Word of God. Look with me at just a few of these concepts. No stronger passage than its definition in 1 John 3. The fourth verse of that chapter simply says, Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And in one sentence we have what really is the constitutional basis of sin. It's a violation of the will God has set forth. In any violation, in any way it's accomplished. And we realize that throughout the character of time, from the days of the patriarchal age onward, men have chosen to do that which was against the will of God and thus have become guilty of sin. The same choices are, can thus be made today as well. It is for that reason you'll notice. Sin is not merely an improper thought. It's not merely something that ought to be better left undone than done. It goes far deeper than that. Sin is an affront, a violation of His will. Not the U.S. government, not the Tennessee state government, not the matters of the Putnam County, Tennessee government. It is a violation of that eternal and powerful rule of law set forth on the pages of His will. And when that is violated in any way, be it by word, be it by deed, be it by thought, sin is now the reality of the day. Sin is a serious business then, isn't it? And yet, as we noted earlier, there are those who can look upon it with lightness and look upon it almost with funniness. Look at what those Bible believers think. It's just choices that people make. One choice is as good as another, some are quick to say, and therefore this issue of this deep and profound reality of sin, they have missed the mark on that. We haven't missed the mark. In fact, sin has by its nature, in the Greek at least, this thought of missing that mark that God has set. You and I might think of it as a bullseye, the kind of life that He desires us by commandment to live. And when we miss it, when we fail, when we have chosen to do that which is against His bidding, we notice that we've missed that mark He has set, and as such, we've become guilty of sin. As you can see by this nature of sin, the Bible points out to us that it's not a minor thing. In Galatians, the fourth chapter, the inspired apostle there quickly noted that God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. And the whole goal was to tackle and to address in completeness that problem of human sin. All unrighteousness is sin, 1 John five seventeen, in every way and in every form. All of that has prepared us for the next matter. What's another word beginning with the letter P that is so descriptive of sin? Sin is also personal. 
in addition to being a presented thing defined by the nature of the will of God, sin is personal. We might be quick to say that it is true that nations can stand guilty before God due to their activity, and so too can other assemblies of people. But at the most basic level, sin starts with the individual, doesn't it? Sin is a personal thing. There has come to be, at least since the days of the denominational movement, a perception that one can approach God in groups and that one can stand righteous before God as a member of a group. We should be very careful about giving way to that line of thinking because ultimately at judgment we won't be judged by families, nor will we be judged by churches, nor will we be judged by nations. We will be judged by individual basis, will we not? In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, the inspired writer said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. It will start at the level of individual reckoning and accounting before God. It is with that in mind that some of these bottom comments come before us. Sin is not first and foremost a matter that attaches to large groups. It starts with me, and by the same token, it starts with you. I would invite you to consider with me just a few of these verses. We might well start in the New Testament. In Romans 14, 12, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, had these words to say to them when he said, So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. There is an emphasis twice on personal pronouns in that passage. Each of us give account of himself to God. That does mean that our duties and our responsibilities in life may well impact and touch the lives of others, but we will give an accounting to God for our dutifulness toward them or our failure with respect to them as well. One of the things the Bible helps us to appreciate is the blessedness with which we can interact with others, say our husband, our wives, our children, the other elements and members of our family. All of that's so special, and our duties toward those people are very important. But at judgment, I will give accounting for myself. Denise won't have to give accounting for me. My children will not have to give accounting for me. I will have to give account for myself, and of course the same will be true for you. That does mean that on that day of judgment, we'll be standing there, not with family in tow, and not with others, but we surely need to have Jesus the Savior there. For we want Him to be able to say that my blood has cleansed this one, and as He addresses the Father, to give appreciation to the fact that we can stand righteous on that occasion, not by the merits of our own efforts, but by the nature of our obedience to His will and the grace shed forth upon us. It is a marvelous matter then to realize that wasn't it Ezekiel who said in the days of the long ago, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Ezekiel 18, verse number 20. When God, through the prophet Ezekiel, had those words spoken forth, the children of Israel, of course, at that time were in Babylonian captivity. 
They were in a dire condition. They were in a sorrowful state in many ways, and yet they were reminded, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. Sin was significant then as well, wasn't it? And it would lead individually to separation from God and personal death on the part of that one. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. So strong were those words that they appeared earlier in that same chapter. Ezekiel 18.4 also states verbatim that same powerful message. In James, the opening chapter, beginning in the 13th verse, here we find James reminding us of this. It is one of the most beautiful and powerful expositions of sin to be found anywhere within the pages of the New Testament. He said, Let no man think that when he sins that God has been the cause of such that immediately begins in our mind to ponder this. If James has begun to think about sin in that way and to challenge us in that way, how should we look upon it? He continues by saying, Everyone's guilty. Everyone is in that category. When first of all, his lust has led one to appreciate that thought, and then that lust he has allowed to dwell up within him to reach that consideration of giving in to that behavior and thus the production of sin. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The nature of the movement throughout that description points us again to this conclusion. The soul that sinneth it shall die. We realize the sentence of physical death comes upon us by virtue of our living in the flesh. This spiritual death, though, is far deeper than that. A separation from the God who loved us and the one who is the only giver of spiritual life. This matter of sin being personal brings us to the closing thoughts in, on that slide, at least in that section. All throughout the Bible, hadn't it been a matter of choice to each and every individual? Didn't Joshua say in Joshua 24, 15, Choose you this day whom you will serve. He made the quick observation, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But he did leave the choice, and so too does the God of heaven, to every individual. What choice have you and I made? Have we chosen wisely or have we chosen foolishly? Sin is personal. We notice carefully in Deuteronomy 30, verse number 19, even Moses issued the challenge in the character of that choice. Didn't God say, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Israel so often chose foolishly. They chose death. They chose sin. Sometimes today you and I still make that same foolish choice, don't we? It does remind us, though, that sin has another character as well. In addition to being presented and in addition to being a personal matter, you'll also notice sin, by and large, is popular. The popularity of sin... The world, you see, seems to make the overwhelming choice to pursue the issues that God has condemned. And hasn't it ever been so? 
when Noah, it was said he was a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, and yet only eight souls boarded the ark. Only eight souls were saved from water despite the fact Noah had preached with earnestness. They simply weren't willing to hear and to obey what God said. In Jeremiah 5, verse number 1, God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you take and look with care and find even one person in Jerusalem. Jeremiah couldn't find even one. Not even one was a faithful servant to God. The vast majority, you see, were lost. They were pursuing the course of sin. They were following the dictates of the carnal character. No wonder Jeremiah wept. No wonder he's often called the weeping prophet of Judah. Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah 9 verse 1. The nature of the weeping character of Jeremiah prompts us to see the popularity of singing. And isn't it still that way? I'm sure we each have already raced in our mind to that text in Matthew 7 wherein Jesus spoke about the popularity of sin in language like this. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The lips of then of the Lord ushered us to appreciate the fact there's a wide way, and many are traveling it. There's a narrow way that leads to life, and only few are traveling on it. Sin's popular. The popularity of sin is highlighted in so many ways in the sacred scriptures. But the very nature of that popularity challenges us to ever appreciate that we mustn't give in to the popularity. It may be that everyone's doing it, but may we rest assured that doesn't make it right, whatever the it may be. Sometimes our youngsters come to us and say, but dad and mom, the other kids are doing it, why can't I? Young people, that's not a good enough reason. Just because the others are doing it, and they may all be lost and doing what's improper, sinful, and not right. You need to be strong enough to not go with the crowd. Because as we see, the crowd's wrong. Always have been, always will be. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. To quote Exodus 23 verse 2. The multitude chooses evil. They choose that which is sinful because they prefer the carnal mind and the life of the flesh. But you and I, as servants of the God of heaven, prefer life in the Spirit. Sin is popular. That popularity perhaps is highlighted by some warnings. We've noted one of them, but the other one is oh so prevalent and penetrating as well. In that first Corinthian epistle, Paul writing to the brethren there, he said, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Evil companionships and associations can gradually wear away at faithfulness and we soon will find ourselves embracing what we once would have condemned. That's one of the gradual sadnesses of sin, isn't it? If we aren't careful, it'll grow on us. We associate with it, we abide with it, we dwell with it, and soon we begin to think like it. The first psalm, perhaps, is one of the strongest warnings against that allowance of that to happen in our lives. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth on the seat of the scornful. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That chapter began in verse 1 again by saying, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. There's not a walking with sin, there's not an association with it, and there's certainly not sitting down to enjoy it. One by one, though, isn't that the tempting way? You first tolerate it, but after a while of toleration, you soon rationalize and defend it. And then after a while, you openly embrace it. That's the way the devil often works, isn't it? And that's the matters he sets before you and me often in the things before us. Those warnings perhaps lead us to the very next element in the lesson. Not only is sin presented, and not only is it popular, we also appreciate that it's also promoted. Yes, indeed, we have seen easily, haven't we, that the devil encourages it. The thought of sin, the character of its existence isn't enough. He wants you and me to be active participants in it. And so it's no wonder the world promotes it. It doesn't just sit by idly and let it happen, but often it openly encourages, supports it, promotes it. Look at some of these features that challenge us about this promotion. I would specifically invite you to look at Galatians 5. In verses 19 to 21 of that chapter, the inspired apostle, speaking again the words of the God of heaven, gave us these works of the flesh. Let me just ask, as you think about the elements in that list, does the world actively promote them? Things like fornication, variance, strife, sedition, temperance, which actually is the latter part of what's presented and promoted as self-control, but it's opposite. This issue of simply doing any and everything, do you find that promoted? There are societies, organizations in our own land that openly promote the things in that list that God calls sinful. The devil, you see, encourages that promotion and does so in ways like these. Jesus said it for himself in John 15, didn't he? He said, don't be surprised. Marvel not if the world hate you. It hated me first. You see, and while the Lord was here, they didn't promote what He did, but they promoted the things against which He preached. You see, they wanted what the Lord said was not the things of God. The world promotes sin, on the other hand, doesn't it? That next passage you'll see in 1 John 3.13 as well as 1 John 2 verses 15 and following. Do they not challenge us to see, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world? For he that doeth the will of God is not of the world. All of that you see, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but rather it is of the world. The world highlights and promotes the nature of sin. And the devil enjoys it. Somewhat reminds us of Jeremiah 5, 31, doesn't it? The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it so. 
so often false teaching and false doctrine fits into that category. You see, because it doesn't demand anything. Individuals can come to a house of supposed worship, come lost, leave lost, and never know the difference. Because what's proclaimed and taught isn't the pure, pristine Word of God. And all the sadness that attaches to it reminds us, sin's promoted. It's lifted up high. It's encouraged. No wonder we must be incredibly watchful, greatly reminded. Didn't Jesus remind the seven churches of Asia that sin's promoted? I would ask you to think about Revelation 18, verses 3 and following a later passage in that same book in which we find that there, one of the things for which Babylon was so powerfully and greatly judged was because she led others to drink of the wine of the fornication of her wrath. She influenced them by promoting these sinful and sad ways. In 2 Peter chapter 2, the greatness is to be seen there also in sadness. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. Here are these that will openly promote sinfulness. They're going to teach it, they're going to set it forth, and they're going to in fact demand it of others. But all the while, they themselves are the bondservants of iniquity, 2 Peter 2.18. You and I must be watchful and careful because sin's promoted and we'll give in to it if we aren't reminded of the truth and if we aren't dedicated and determined to follow always that which is good. Sin is something else as well. It's penetrating. In addition to these other things... Let's spend just a moment and reflect upon the penetrating character of sin. I would suggest we begin like this. When I say penetrating, I really bring it back to a personal consideration. And all of us must surely remember that those activities of sin, be they words, be they thoughts, be they actual deeds or actions, they all start from within the heart. Maybe Jeremiah again said it well in Jeremiah 2.13 when he said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Thus, every time these individuals in Jeremiah's day chose to do the evil, the first thing they had done was to remove God from the throne of their heart. In essence, two for the price of one. They had first forsaken the way of God, and then, to top that, they had done what God said not to do. Proverbs 4.23 then reminds us about our heart. It encourages us in great appreciation. As a man thinketh in his heart so easy, Proverbs 23.7. Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We need to fill our heart with this book. No wonder we read in Psalm 119, verse number 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. If we fill our heart with this, there will be less room to crowd the other bad things in there, and hopefully there will be no room at all at some point. For we know that we appreciate the penetrating character of sin. When you think about that, he, the writer in Proverbs, you'll also notice Jesus echoed these same sentiments, didn't He? In fact, He even stated them more profoundly. 
In Matthew 15, Jesus had to answer some questions about what is it that defiles a person. They thought failing to wash your hands before you eat would do it. Jesus told them, that which enters into a man is not what defiles him, it's what comes out. And he proceeded to list things like murders and evil thoughts and fornications and adulteries and these other matters that come out of the heart of man. And those are the very things that are reckoned to sin. Sin is penetrating. It will be a canker that will eat from the inner part out. And it will make us so black with sin in the sight, of course, of God. Sin is penetrating. That penetration perhaps is highlighted finally in the great separation that it brings to those guilty of it. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and following. That separation is seen as the darkness and blackness of Isaiah 118 when we'd like to be clean and white as wool, but yet we're stained with scarlet and sin. No wonder the prophet said, Come and let us reason together, saith the Lord. God wants us to be reminded and to heed and to obey fully what will remove this so awful and penetrating character of sin. What else is sin besides penetrating? Perhaps as we come near the latter part of our lesson today, I think we skipped one. Sin is also powerful. Powerful. I'm sure we would have gained that impression as we discussed its penetrating character. But at least a highlighted feature of its power might need to be seen in your life and mine. For if we appreciate its power, we'll be far less likely to succumb and to give in to it. But look at these things. We noted the Ezekiel 18 passage earlier. Consider with me its New Testament counterpart. Romans 6 verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What are the wages of sin? What are its consequences? The inspired writer said death. Separation from God, removal from the fullness of receiving the greatness of His spiritual blessings. How awful. How tragic. How terrible. And if not remedied, how eternal. Sin is powerful. Its reproach is seen in language like this. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. You can almost hear tears streaming down the face of Jeremiah in that verse, Jeremiah 3.25. Sin's powerful. So powerful it can doom a soul to hell. We need to be reminded of that power and ever aware that we need to be sure and not succumb to it. To not let those temptations result in our removal from Christ to the point that we render ourselves as eternally lost. That power may be a seen also in what we observed in the life of David. It may be this aspect of sin sometimes is overlooked. We've highlighted the spiritual power of sin, how it separates a person from God, but consider what physical consequences it has. David was reckoned as a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14. When we arrive at 2 Samuel 11, we find that he wasn't where he should have been. When kings were supposed to be out at war, David was behind at the palace. 
And he walked on the palace roof and saw Bathsheba bathing. We noticed he had her called and brought to him, committed adultery with her that night. And although David was forgiven of that sin, Psalm 51 is his great prayer of penitence in which he opened his life and self to God, beseeching God's forgiveness. We did remember, though, that Nathan said, David, the sword will never depart from your house. Think about the rebellion and the anarchy that he and his family suffered from that day forward. All seeds that came about because of his foolish and sinful activities in 2 Samuel 11. One of his sons raped his own, his own half-sister. One of his sons also, in fact, committed murder, taking the life of one of the other half-brothers. We notice one of his other sons, who wasn't put to death, ultimately hated his dad so much he tried to take the throne from him. All of that coming about because of the seeds that David put in the ground in 2 Samuel 11. The sword never departed from his house. Sin can, bitter, can bear some awfully bitter fruit. It can bring about things that we will sorely regret. We need to be wiser than that and appreciate sin's powerful. The last thing today that sin is is permitted. We'll use this as an opportunity to simply say this. This particular lesson will continue next Lord's Day when there are more things that sin is that all start with the letter P. For today, sin is permitted. It has its attractiveness. The devil can make it look sweet, can make it look interesting, can make it look appealing. But all the while, as we've seen, it can bear some terribly tragic fruits. In Hebrews 11.25, the inspired writer said that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy pleasures of sin for a season. The devil can present sin in a way that highlights its pleasure, perhaps momentary, perhaps exceedingly brief, and all the while one doesn't have the vision to see beyond it, the bitter, bitter life that it may bring to bear. It is for those reasons I would encourage you to note this. We are encouraged to then give all diligence to add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. And now listen, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we will, with greatness, add these things, despite the fact the world doesn't encourage them, the world encourages sin, and often the permission of it harms all of us. When we as parents permit sin, and we don't discipline our children as we should, when we in our interaction with others don't discipline ourselves and permit these sinful things, by our permission, we're not doing anybody any favor, including ourselves. Sin is permitted. Perhaps in finality, we can summarize the lesson by simply listing again those things we noted. Sin is presented. It's personal. It's popular. Furthermore, it's promoted, it's penetrating, it's powerful, and it's permitted. All of these remind us of the greatness of sin and how much the Bible has to say about it. And yet, there is so much more to come. As you analyze your life today and scrutinize it, and as I do the same, we each should fall prostrate before God and honestly ask, 
do these things describe my viewpoint towards sin? Do you and I consider it popular? Do we promote it? Do we permit it? Or rather, as we primarily will see next week, do we look at it a bit differently? The popularity of sin challenges us today. If you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, that is the one and only thing that can cleanse it, the blood of Christ. If we could be of some assistance to you, as one that's an alien sinner, never yet named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, why not attend to that need in your life today? As an individual in sin, surely you don't want to remain in a state in which you highlight the ugliness, the popularity, the permissiveness of sin, and all these features that go with it. Don't you want to be right with your Creator, your Maker? Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. He went on to say, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3. He then stated that we need to confess Him, Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, and then to be baptized, Mark 16, 16. If you haven't attended that today, why delay? If you have, perhaps at some former time in life, but you have gradually moved aside from the truth of the gospel and you've allowed sin a stranglehold and stronghold of your life, don't remain in that state. The Lord beseeches that you make the right decision today. If your sins have been public, why not confess them before this audience, repent of them, and make a strong determination not to be guilty of them again. And let us pray for you. If that's the need of your life today, we would urge and invite you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.